0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from the Business and Vancouver Newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk
1: LePoint. I'm Tyler Orton. BIV is once again seeking BC's outstanding entrepreneurs, executives, managers, and professionals in public, private, and nonprofit sectors for the 2018 40 Under 40 Awards. Nominations close July 30th. You only have a few more days left, so go to BIV.com slash events for more details.
0: And a range of innovative disruptive technology has emerged to provide financial services and systems that conduct transactions and aim for greater efficiency in that sector. Join us September 13th for BIV's FinTech panel, where we're going to focus on helping small and medium-sized businesses make informed decisions in this new landscape. For more information, go also to BIV.com slash
1: events. So after capping a $62 million financing round this week, Talus Ventures Managing Director Rich Osborne, he is going to join the show to discuss the strategy behind this corporate venture capital fund and why he's turning his attention to health tech startups as well as those in IOT.
0: And later on, Tyler and Haley Wooden are going to talk to the C.D. Howe Institute's Daniel Schwanen. He's going to break down a new report examining Canada's lackluster record attracting foreign direct investment and what Ottawa can do to remove barriers and attract more investment. We should also mention that BIV Today is taking a week-long hiatus. This is our last show before we return after the August long weekend. Now let's talk to Rich Osborne from Telus Ventures.
1: The venture capital arm of TELUS, well, it's had a very big week. It led a financing round for a Canadian startup to the tune of $62 million. TELUS Ventures launched in 2001 and has since invested in more than 70 companies. But health technology, the Internet of Things, and artificial intelligence have been transforming the way we interact with this technology. And TELUS has also been taking a leading role in the Vancouver-based Super Cluster Initiative here. And joining us today to talk about what the future holds for these evolving relationships, it's Rich Osborne, Managing Director of Telus Ventures. Rich, thanks for joining us on the show.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: So, Rich, a, a $62 million financing round. When you get involved with something with, with these large numbers, do you ever have to kind of take a, a deep breath, just uh, be prepared for a lot of big numbers, a, a lot of big commitments to a certain company?
2: Do I have to take a deep breath? No, yes, yeah. you <laughs> Yeah. Um. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, they are big numbers, um, but uh, I think you have to have trust in the strategy and trust in the process, uh, you know, the team. Um, I think in this particular case, you know, Mike Serbinus. Um, I was saying this to somebody the other day, I, I'm not sure if there's any, certainly not many, uh, other entrepreneurs, uh, you know, Mike and his entire team, who have, Created value in so many different industries, um, you know, so many different technology sectors uh, the way he has. And so, if you're going to bet on a team, which is kind of, you know, they say real estate is location, 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 well, venture capital's team management, management, so I don't know that there's a better team in Canada to bet on,
1: frankly. Right? And of course, you're talking about League Incorporated. Uh, this is a Toronto-based startup that is very much focused on, say, digital health uh, platforms, uh, making it easier for people to access a lot of these services, right? That's right. Yeah.
0: yeah pick up on uh, what you said there, uh, because I think a lot of our listeners would also be wondering, what is it that then can attract that kind of capital investment? Yeah. Uh, you talk about team. How important is that team, even if it doesn't necessarily have the the, the rigid focus that you necessarily want on what it's producing yet?
2: Um, well, I think, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fact, certainly one I've observed in my career, that very few companies end up exactly where they started in technology. You yes. know, mm-hmm. start with one product idea, one customer segment, and it'll evolve. Mm-hmm. Either uh, the market will change, the customer buying behaviors will change, what have you. So I think if you're going to navigate, you know, what's increasingly uh, rapid change and increasingly competitive markets, you got to have a team that's able to adapt. And um, so I think the team is, you know, as I said at the beginning, it's it's everything.
0: Yeah. How often how often do they come back and and essentially surprise investors with their next new idea?
2: Um, yeah, I don't know if I can answer that sort of numerically. I think I would say it's the exception, not the rule that every company or that a, you know, a tech company, maybe every company, let's talk about tech specifically, ends up exactly uh, where they intended to, right? I mean, I would say uh, almost everybody goes through two or three, frankly, pretty fundamental transformational, you know, pivots, whatever term you want to use in the revolution to success.
1: For a corporation like TELUS, I mean, what is kind of the, the raise on debt for a corporate venture capital arm? I mean, are you guys there just to get a solid return on investment? Are, are you looking at building relationships with these startups, getting access to technology that wouldn't necessarily be developed uh, in-house at TELUS?
2: I think it's a combination of a couple of things. I mean, I think, you know, increasingly innovation is strategy, right? You have to innovate in order to, to thrive and survive. And that's equally applicable to small companies or large ones. So I'd say that, you know, corporate venture capital is, um, about playing both offense and defense. It's about, uh, or, you know, as some folks talk about, you know, this notion of exploit and explore. So you find partners, uh, startups, uh, what have you that can help you protect your current market position. And, you know, we use kind of the terms tactical uh, to, de- to describe those. And then you want to invest in things that are further out, that are more strategic, that are more long-term in impact, uh, more broadly transformational to let you explore new markets. And So, you know, this notion of innovation uh, being a-, a core part of every executive's mandate now, um, corporate venture is an increasingly important, Tool in that uh, innovation toolkit,
0: and on the other side of this, what do you think these companies are looking for from you? Of course, beyond the the sheer investment, what is it? What other qualities do you think they're looking for?
2: Well, I think in some, you know, in some fashion, they're looking for the same things they would expect a you know a purely financial VC to bring to the table. So, you know, governance, guidance, and advice, introductions. Um, you know uh, uh, support in recruiting things like that but I think there's another whole element which of course is um, as an industry player um, and certainly in the case of TELUS you know of the leaders in a number of different areas core telecom services IOT etc they're looking for exposure to our technical capabilities distribution sales our customer reach uh, you know, our executives are pretty well networked across their areas of expertise. And I think getting access to, you know, their brains, if not their, uh, their channels, is, is a really core part of what the startup's looking for.
0: Can the sudden access to that scale <laughs> almost be intimidating for some of these smaller firms?
2: Yeah, I think so. And then frankly, that's kind of our job, right, as a corporate VC, is to play the, the matchmaker between the, the needs of our business units. Um, and their strategy and the startups that can potentially help them and obviously there's lots of benefits for the startup if they're able to solve the pain points for us and our stakeholders, right? It's a a nice win-win for both sides.
1: Well, one of the companies that I think has very obvious links and could be beneficial, mutually beneficial here is Vancouver-based Mojio, which you guys put an undisclosed amount into a couple months ago. And I'm just wondering what the appeal is of a company that is focused on, say, connected cars, IoT, and just the links between your company and, and them and the relationship that can develop from there.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, that whole um, intelligent or autonomous vehicle space, the connected car platforms, um, I think they drive real value to consumers, right? The ability to either just be connected in an in-car environment or to have all the apps that you can deploy through the Mojo platform. We're finding people are doing really interesting things with it. So I think you've got, you know, at the end of the day, everything starts with how do we drive better value for the customer? And so Mojo does that in, in a new, call it form factor, in a new environment. And then for us, you know, so we sell it. We sell Mojo through our dealers. Um, and, uh, you know, it's got really good uptake. People really kind of come to uh, develop even new use cases that we hadn't anticipated using Mojio. So I think it's a nice... It's a nice uh, it's a nice fit for both
0: sides it's always interesting to get uh, the uh, observation of of people in this field about the depth of talent and um, and the kind of uh, uh, innovation that's taking place in our country right now uh, give us a bit of an assessment here in in you know mid to late 2018 about what our strengths and weaknesses are in this area
2: in technology
0: uh, talent specifically yeah yeah well, I mean, I think if you've seen the recent stats in terms of job
2: growth creation in places like Toronto and others, I mean, uh, you know, we are, uh, we don't have to apologize to anybody. We're outpacing growth in all the major markets. So I think that's a terrific sign, right? Um, I would say that the challenge in Canada, it's, it's actually not one of ambition. It's not one of, of you know, drive a lot of times people will point to that i don't think it's any of those things i just think we are still a relatively young uh, labor force kind of domestically in terms of experience scaling companies kind of north of pick a number say 100 million right okay. mm-hmm. and and i think once you do that as an executive and you understand what it takes to really build those call them anchor companies um You know, you then can apply those both in earlier stage companies as an executive or a venture investor or as an advisor, what have you. I don't think we've had enough companies that have gone through that $100 million mark and then, you know, regerminated the next generation of companies. Now, there's lots of cause for optimism. Lots of companies are coming up uh, that that can break through that barrier or are breaking through that barrier. I'm involved in Vision Critical. You know, I think Mojo's got a very good shot. Um, you know, League is an example. So I think we're getting there, but it's it's still, you know, uh, relatively early days.
1: Yeah, I think the, the one that pops to mind just in this past year is, say, a Vigilon here in Vancouver, which had a, a large exit. And I think we're hoping for more of those talented or those tech talents to come out of that with, with money that they're willing to invest in the community. And is that what's going to have to happen? Is this a bit of a, a cyclical sort of experience like as the experts come out and they've been through the ringer before they know exactly what to do moving forward with a lot of these early stage companies
2: yeah i mean if you look at uh you look at any big you know tech ecosystem and obviously you can always look at the valley look at uh fairchild semiconductor right i mean six or seven they were successful, and then it begat six or seven companies. Intel, most notably, and then you know from Intel it sprung the next generation. So I, you have to start with big anchor companies that have success that trains those executives, like I was just describing. Those executives make some money, and then they start redeploying that you know back into the next generation of startups. So we we need we need to go through those life those uh, life cycles, um, but I think we're getting there. I mean, you know, uh, Ryan Holmes always talks about the maple syrup math. You Right, you've got a vigil on and what they're doing. I mean, I think there's been enough success stories. Look at Paul, Terry, uh, and Adam Lorenz, Right, so you're, you have you have these anchors that are uh, that are doing it, and um, and I think we're you know we're starting to see the fruits of that.
0: Into this mix now, uh, as you know, Richard, uh, and you, you're quite intimately involved in this, uh, is the uh, the new uh, digital technology supercluster that the federal government's going to help finance, obviously. Uh, what do you think that will do in terms of uh, altering uh, even the context for technology development in this country?
2: You know, to be honest, I, uh, I, I, I mean, I think it's got... Great ambitions, and you know, Telus is a founding partner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's going to, um, you know, it, it's it's going to be an interesting effort to watch how it navigates kind of just the just the sheer complexity of partners that are involved, right? I think the ambition is there. I think the objectives are great. And I think if it works, it can really drive some kind of standards-based approaches to things that are you know, really critically important, like precision medicine and things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think you're going to see, um, you know, when it reaches sufficient velocity, um, you're going to see some really compelling advancements in using data in a kind of more standardized approach with government and with the private sector to drive health outcomes. And, you know, for TELUS, telus Health in particular, um, you know, that's one of our key three objectives is this notion of creating quantifiable health outcomes for Canadians. So, so I think, you know, in terms of, we're really aligned with it, but I think it's it's going to take some time for that really to kind of reach maturity.
0: So then, from your perspective, how, how can it um, perhaps avert? some of its most severe growing pains.
2: I think it's really, um, you know, it's really going to be incumbent on all of the participants to navigate the balance between self-interest and the collective good. And, uh, (laughs) you know, know, I'd, I'd say we're going into it with a very collaborative, um, uh, open approach. And I, I, I trust and hope that the others are doing the same. There will be times when people's interests are not perfectly aligned, and I think and then it's just going to be really about the kind of Canadian spirit and trying to, to pull together to advance the the cause. You
1: know? Well, Le-
0: leave your guns at the door. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's such a disparate kind of group of you know partners with this. You've got like mining companies, technology companies. I, I'm just wondering, and not putting words in your mouth here, but is it run the risk of maybe hurting cats to a certain degree, making sure that there is like a strategy that is comprehensive and cohesive going forward.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the uh, I think you put your finger on it. I think the disparity, not only the sheer number, but the disparity of backgrounds and perspectives is both the best thing and potentially the most challenging thing. Right? I think you need to align people on direction, kind of the north store, north star, excuse me, in terms of objectives, um, and just hope that people uh, people buy in. And I think they will. I really do. Like I'm optimistic about it. I, it's very, very important for Telus, um, and uh, you know that's why we are one of the founders. But I, I think it's it's uh, it's really going to be a, a coalition of the willing, uh, and those that are unwilling to be good partners. You know, hopefully they'll. Uh, They'll step aside.
1: Excellent. Rich, we'll keep going back to you as uh, more updates come with regards to this supercluster here, as well as for what, you know, just Telus is looking at with regards to its relationship for startups. And in the meantime, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. That's Rich Osborne, Managing Director over at Telus Ventures. Tyler
0: and Haley Wooden are going to talk to Daniel Schwannen next from the CD Howe Institute. He's going to talk about Canada's challenges in attracting foreign direct investment.
1: Foreign direct investment into Canada, it's been on a bit of a wane ever since 2014. Even smaller resource-based economies like Australia's, those are overtaking Canada in terms of net FDI flows. So what is Ottawa to do? Our next guest has authored a report calling on the government to remove barriers on foreign direct investment. And I'd like to welcome back to the show Daniel Schwannen. He is Vice President of Research at CD Howe Institute. Daniel, thanks for joining us today.
3: Very happy to be here.
1: So in this report, you you seize on the OECD's Foreign Direct Investment Restrictiveness Index. Tell us a little bit about why Canada is ranking so low here in this index and and what it means for our country.
3: Well, there's a couple of reasons uh, why uh, the OECD looks uh, askance at uh, Canada's uh, foreign direct investment policy. Uh, So how we welcome foreign investors. The first first one is... uh, that we still have a number of uh, of sectors, and uh, you know, telecom and uh, media is often mentioned, but there are, there 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 are others where you know the possibilities for foreigners to invest in Canada are quite restricted. That's number one, or at least to acquire control of firms in Canada is is quite restricted. Um, that's one reason. The other reason is that uh, we're one of the very few countries uh, that has. A formal screening, you know, compulsory screening mechanism. So when a large now that applies only for for large acquisitions of uh, of Canadian firms uh, over a, a billion dollars, but a billion and a half even for uh, uh, European investors now and TPP investors. But the the idea is that if you're making a, an acquisition of a large uh, a, a large acquisition in Canada. The assumption is we need to look at you very carefully um, for for whether this is a good thing for the country or not, and um, and so you you get you have to pass a so-called net benefit test, uh, which according to some observers and I would tend to agree is you know is is is, is a bit convoluted uh, and and not very clear. So other countries. Uh, don't have, uh, don't ask investors to pass that test. Um, although they have other kinds of tests, uh, like uh, obviously checking for whether you're a national security threat, which which is certainly understandable, but not the kind of uh, uh, economic test that uh, Canadian uh, the Canadian government asks you to pass.
4: Mm-hmm. Why do you think we have this stringent test in place here in Canada?
3: Well, that's a that's a, obviously a very good a very good question and i think that it's uh, because we have had a a complex uh let's call it history in the past with uh with foreign investment um it's just uh sometimes seen with uh uh with suspicion you know like we're losing control of our economy because we have uh uh at least in the past um um there was a lot more foreign investment in Canada than Canadian investment abroad. That is just no longer the case. Uh, we, we've become major investors abroad as well. It's actually quite balanced our investments in other economies, uh, what our businesses own in other economies uh, versus what uh, foreign businesses own here in Canada is quite balanced. Uh, and it's just part of being integrated with the world economy that you have these uh, These two-way flows. So in the past, I think it was viewed, uh, you know, with with some suspicion, foreigners controlling the Canadian economy, and uh, and I think that that's the history behind uh, that test. But from my perspective, um, you know, uh, of course, if you have a shady history uh, and you pose a national security threat, you shouldn't be allowed to invest in Canada. Uh, But for 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 everyone else, I think that it's uh, it it's a bit of a useless test and it makes us, uh, uh, you know, it looks like we're assuming that it's a bad thing that people invest here. And I don't think, uh, I think it's just not, it, it's not very good for our, our reputation.
1: Well, and let's talk a little bit about why it is a good thing. Why does Canada want to encourage foreign direct investment in our economy now?
3: Well, uh, it goes back to the question of um, uh, being integrated with the world economy, with with global value chains, uh, uh, and of course, with uh, uh, with with it, it goes hand in hand with trade. Uh, and what we do know is that, uh, 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 for example, Canadians are working for uh, foreign-owned companies are. Um uh, that that brings up our average productivity level uh, and it brings up uh, our wages as well. so they uh, they the foreign investors create essentially create very very good jobs in Canada. and I think that when Canadians invest abroad uh, they create we create good jobs abroad, but we also create good jobs at home. So we need to think of foreign direct investment as well, wait a minute, what we have is here is we have Canadians. Working for a foreign company, uh, working together or hand in hand uh, with other people through this foreign investment in different parts of the world, uh, we work at what we do best, they work at what we they do best, we work together, and that creates a very high value for both, which allows these companies to pay higher wages and so on so it's a it's that kind of dynamic of uh, the more integrated you are in the world economy, the higher value you can create at home and the higher wages you can pay, so it's all—it's all part of that dynamic. Why we we, we would want to welcome uh, foreign investment?
1: Well, mm. let, let's talk a little bit about the recommendations that you have here in your reports. Tell us about why you think maybe Ottawa needs to be a little bit more transparent going forward if it wants to attract foreign direct investment.
3: Yeah, I think I think transparency is 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 certainly very uh, very important. Uh, and to be fair, as we mentioned in the report. Canada has liberalized some rules uh, vis-à-vis foreign direct investment. Uh, the government has, uh, in the past few years, uh, become more explicit about what it was looking for. Uh, under, it's less opaque than uh, than it used to be, um, and it's also published guidelines. For example, vis-à-vis state-owned enterprises. Uh, and it's established a new national security test. So, you know, it's not like we haven't moved in that direction, but uh, other countries have as well. So there's a bit of a battle for uh, attracting foreign investment, and I think what what we need to do is ask ourselves: Does a particular foreign investment uh, mean that, uh, or foreign investment in general mean that foreign-owned companies here in Canada? Uh, will not respect our our our, our laws, our, our safety or environmental regulations. Uh, won't pay taxes. Uh, you know, will they work uh, at the behest uh, of uh, a foreign government and and against Canadian interests? Uh, will they create less competition rather than more? And you know, and if if the answer is is uh, um, uh, is, is no to any of these questions. In other words, if you can expect a foreign investor to behave pretty much as a large Canadian company would behave in the Canadian market, uh, unless you have a suspicion that they won't, they should be welcome by default, if you like. And uh, and that's what I'm asking in this paper, that we reverse the onus of the proof. It's up to the government to uh, to show that an investment is unwelcome because the investor uh, itself, if you like, uh, if it's a foreign company or, uh, or a state-owned company, is unwelcome because we think that they're going to do something bad, literally, or they're not going to follow uh, Canadian laws and regulations. But it's up to the government to show that the investor is, is not welcome rather than for us to ask of every investor over a certain amount uh, to pass a test um and 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 uh, uh, and make some commitments that in any event are only going to be good for three or five years because no one in Canada no one would invest uh, if you're going to tell them how to what to do with their company forever so there's you know we ask investors to make some commitments to meet the test uh, but they're very transient and 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 I think in the process they they don't do any good for Canada's reputation as a uh, um, uh, vis-a-vis uh, foreign direct investment. We should be and and look more welcoming.
4: Mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious to get your take on this. Foreign direct investment is often likened to, say, water and regulations being the tap. So if regulations loosen, you have more FDI flowing to a country. But you also mentioned the reputation piece. And I'm I, I'd like to know from you whether the longer here in Canada we go, without maybe changing some of our attitudes and policies towards FDI, could there be longer-term implications, maybe investors or countries deciding, you know what, even though Canada down the line chooses maybe to change its regulations, they haven't been that welcome, and so we're already set up elsewhere. Is there a threat of that happening that we sort of maybe miss out?
3: There's definitely a competition for foreign investment. So in some cases, uh, like in telecommunications and uh, uh and 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 broadcasting and media we basically tell investors to to stay out mostly of our market so right there this you know it's a bit of a it's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a giveaway that that you're you're mm-hmm. saying we really don't want you <laughs> and i think we should reexamine those kinds of uh uh those kinds of limits on uh, on foreign uh, on foreign investment um or even you know limits on on investments uh, uh, period I mean you have uh, you have uh, certain sectors or certain companies like uh, CN is an example where you know no investor can own more than 25 percent now uh, whether they're Canadian or foreign that's fine but uh, uh, you know is that also not something that discourages foreign uh, foreign investment. Um, so those kinds of limits, they're all over the place in various sectors and, and companies. So we should just re-examine them. Do they have a policy purpose? Can the government run an economy and and uh, have its regulations follow and meet its policy goals uh, just as well uh, when the investor is foreign than when the owner uh, is is Canadian? And if the answer is yes. Then we don't need to limit foreign direct investment, and and we can boost our reputation and our attractiveness uh, that way. And and then there is the screening and the test. And as I said, uh, were there there are very few other countries that have this uh, uh, exact system, um, and uh, or this kind of system, I should say, where you know you have to basically. You know, you're you're sort of uh, I mean, being hauled on, on the carpet is not is, is not quite what's happening, but you basically are being asked all kinds of questions about your investment uh, before you're allowed to make it, uh, and and you're asked typically to make some commitments uh, to the Canadian market and so on. And so it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a red flag for else they can just make an acquisition. Um, and uh, for example in the US unless they're seen as a national security threat um, then the investment is typically welcome without further questioning so that's that's what we're facing where foreign direct investment is a a good thing Uh, uh, there's a lot of places typically that uh, investors can invest in Um, our economy is now, but when you look at the long-term pros- prospects people are asking about uh, the future of NAFTA and so on and so we're we're, we're facing enough uncertainties as it is uh, we do need and want specific, very explicitly its government policy to want to attract foreign direct investment so uh, my, our, my conclusion is let's at least look more welcoming um, and in practice be, be more welcoming and that's what we're recommending in uh, in the paper.
1: Yeah, I tell you what, Daniel, uh, we're going to keep our eyes on whether any of these restrictions loosen on, say, the telecom industry. And Haley and I can look forward to maybe cell phone bills that aren't going to be as high as they are right now. But uh, for now, thank you so much for joining us on the show. You're welcome. That's Daniel Schwannen. He is Vice President of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute. And that's it for BIV today. Thank you for listening.
4: You can subscribe to us and find past episodes on iTunes and Stitcher and leave us a review if you wish. You can also find our stories in print and online at BIV.com.